John chapter 7. John chapter 7. As uh, we continue our study here in the wonderful gospel according to John. John chapter 7. And this morning we want to look at thirst quenching. I think I need to do that right now. Let's see. I noticed I got two bottles of water, so it must be a dry message. <laughs> I think my wife was anticipating something. <clears throat> In uh, 1965, many years ago, when uh, some of us were just... Uh, not very old at that time. Others were well on their way. In 1965, there were four doctors at the University of Florida that began working after hours on a new drink that would rehydrate and replenish the nutrients lost by football players in the hot Florida sun. And today, we know their concoction was Gatorade. Gatorade. In 2005, journalist Darren Ravel published a book in chronicling the history of the sports drink and uh, the company, and he entitled his book, First in Thirst. And uh, so that was uh, a very important uh, date in history. So there's your history lesson for today. Uh, and if you don't think it's important, just look at all the sports drinks that are on sale uh, and uh, how much uh, Gatorade's been sold since that time. But in the uh, book of John here, uh, we've been looking at a passage that uh, uh, Jesus and his disciples and many, many people, including the uh, Jewish leaders, are celebrating the Jewish festival of tabernacles. It was an originally a commemoration of Israel's past, which also included in this feast prayers for rain and water. And the dry season was upon the promised land, and the people came to thank God for the previous harvest and ask Him to send water again for the coming year. Uh, sometimes that may not seem too important to us, you know, pray for rain. Well, we do have our dry spells. We haven't had one this summer. We've had a rather wet uh, time, but, uh, uh, and I'm sure the folks down in the Florida coast and up uh, the west, uh, east coast there uh, got their prayers answered if they were praying for rain because they've gotten a lot of rain through uh, Hurricane Matthew. But on the last day of this feast, John says that Jesus stood and cried, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. We're down in about uh, verse 37 through 39 this morning, and verse 37, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Jesus was really the first in thirst. So this uh, fellow that wrote the book uh, perhaps didn't realize that, but we could say Jesus was really first in thirst, and he alone is the one that can satisfy the deepest thirst that's in people's hearts. Because he can give living water. Now, when you read Jesus' words here, where he promises that from the innermost being of one who believes in him shall flow rivers of water. You find it there in verse 38. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. 
And to what extent is that true in your life and in my life? Since we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, has it been our experience that ever-flowing, abundant rivers of living water have gushed up inside of us and flowed out of us? Well, those questions would probably be both convicting and even hope-producing. They are convicting because really none of us can truly say, yes, those words nail it. That's exactly that describes my life as a Christian. You see, honesty forces me to say, at least, well, there's a lot of times just been a trickle of living water. And although there have been some droughts where even things have dried up, occasionally there's a creek of living water. But ever-flowing, abundant rivers of water, that's rivers, plural, be a stretch to describe my Christian life like that. So Jesus' words really convict me. I don't know about you, but they convict me with the barrenness of my walk sometimes with God. But you know what? Jesus' words do give us hope. They are not only convicting, but they are uh, hope-producing. If my life doesn't match up to this description here, it can, and so can yours. You see, this is a promise from the Son of God to all who will come to Him and drink. It says, out of His belly shall flow rivers of living water. Describes an ideal that none of us can possess perfectly in the present life because of the indwelling sin and the old sin nature, but because of differing measures of faith, but it's an ideal in which we can make progress in as we walk with the Lord. We really can experience consistent fullness of joy in Him that flows from us to others. And so we would have hope because He who began the good work of salvation in us will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. But we need to press on, press for the mark, press for the goal, as Paul said in Philippians 3.12-16. through 16. And so Jesus' promise here to all is there is a promise But there's an implicit requirement and a result. Notice, first of all, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ blesses all who believe in Him with rivers of living water of His Spirit. I want you to notice five things about this wonderful promise. First of all, the person of the promise. Jesus claims, or Jesus' claim, shows Him to be God in the human flesh. And to appreciate Jesus' claim here, we need to note the setting. Again, the setting is the Feast of Tabernacles, the third important feast in the Jewish calendar, you know, after Passover and the Pentecost, uh, or the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a harvest feast. It was a time of thanksgiving to God. Now, what happened here is the Israelites would build these little tabernacles or booths. And that would remind them of how God took care of them in the wilderness and where he provided manna and water, remember, from the rock. The feasts also look forward to the final harvest and the ingathering of the nations during the Messiah's kingdom. And so during Jesus' time, the feast was also characterized by a daily 
procession led by a priest that would carry a golden pitcher of water drawn from the pool of Siloam. And the water was poured out at the base of the altar. At the same time, there would be another feast or priest who would pour out a pitcher of wine on the other side of the, the altar, which pointed to the future outpouring of the The Holy Spirit is predicted by Isaiah in Isaiah 12 and verse 3, where it says, Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. In Isaiah 44, verse 3, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. John wants us to see that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Back in John chapter 1, verse 14, he told us, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled is the word, tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. Paul tells us that Jesus is the rock that supplied Israel with water in the barren desert. He's also the bread of life, the fulfillment of the manna that sustained Israel in the wilderness. And so now on the last day of this feast, Jesus claims to be the source of living water to all who will come to him and drink. In other words, he fulfills all that the feast is symbolizing. And the water pouring ceremony took place every day for seven days, followed by an eighth day in which a holy convocation was held And John says here in verses 37 through 39, Jesus stood and he cried out, or he shouted with a loud voice, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. (coughs) We notice that that's an astonishing claim. It's an amazing claim. No mere human could make that promise. Come unto me and drink, and I'll fulfill the scriptures by causing rivers of living water to flow out of your belly or your innermost being. Who except God in human flesh, God tabernacling among us, could legitimately make that claim? And so we find the person of the promise. Secondly, we find the breadth of the promise. Jesus, you notice his offer is open to all. He says, any man, any man. That's as broad as you can get. It extended to Jesus' enemies who were trying to kill him. They could come and drink. It later extended to a man who described himself as the chief of sinners, the apostle Paul. And by giving the offer in the temple, he extended it to the religious Jews who had come to Jerusalem from all over to celebrate this feast. And even though they were going through all the prescribed Jewish rituals, those rituals could not save them. Religious observances cannot save anyone then or now. Just coming to church, just singing the songs, just giving in the offering... Just doing all these things cannot save a person. Everyone needs to come to Jesus and drink. And because the Spirit inspired John to record Jesus' words here, the offer extends to each one of us. When he said, if any man, that includes us today. 
Now, whether you grew up in a Christian home or you've always gone to church or whether you have been a complete pagan or a convicted criminal, the offer is still for you. Come to Jesus and drink. No one is excluded. And to underscore this truth, the Bible Bible virtually ends by repeating Jesus' offer in Revelation 22 and verse 17 where he said, Come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is athirst, come. And whosoever will. You notice that? Whosoever will. Let him take the water of life freely. So we have the breadth of the promise. Notice also the condition of the promise. You you must be thirsty. Uh, Jesus Christ, if any man thirst, you have to be thirsty for God. The Bible often uses that kind of language. We saw that in Revelation 22. I just quoted Revelation 22, 17. Isaiah 55, 1 proclaims, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. We read there in, or the psalmist says in, in Psalm 42, verse 1, as the heart Or the deer panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. And then as we read in our scripture reading this morning, in Psalm 63 and verse 1, the psalmist says, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Again, in Revelation 21, verse 6, Jesus said, I will give him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. Now, at first glance, being thirsty for God seems easy enough. But you know, the problem is because of sin, people either don't recognize their thirst or they are seeking to satisfy it in the wrong way. No doubt we've heard the most difficult thing of getting people saved is to first get them lost. In other words, people don't sense their desperate need for Christ. They don't feel thirsty for him. Instead, they try to quench their thirst with many wrong things. They think, well, if I'm successful, I'll have this thirst quenched. If I have money, if I have fame, if I have sexual pleasure, or other things will satisfy my inner thirst. But thirsting for things other than God and his glory is the root of all sin. The beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, we are empty, we are needy sinners. Until we know that we're lost and we're on our way to a Christless eternity, there's no way we can be saved. The very first step toward heaven is to be thoroughly convinced that we deserve hell. But once you recognize your thirst for God, the good news is, There is an offer of a free gift. You don't have to work all your life to earn it. You don't have to clean up your life first to qualify for it. So that means, that points to the simplicity of the promise. (coughs) Now to receive the living water, simply simply come to Jesus and drink. Wow, isn't that great? Jesus didn't say, if any man thirsts, keep digging, and eventually you'll hit water. No, no. 
He didn't say, if anyone is thirsty, let him join the church, get baptized, take communion, do penance, give money to the church, clean up your life, attend church every Sunday. Jesus didn't say that. He simply said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Me implies it's a very personal relationship with Jesus, not a bunch of religious rules or rituals. Now, what could be more simple? You're outside working in the yard on a hot day. Now, you do remember it was summer just a few, you know, weeks ago. And you're, you know, you're working outside and your wife comes out with a pitcher of ice cold lemonade. And she says, come and drink. Doesn't take a lot of effort. Doesn't take a lot of willpower. Doesn't take a college degree. You come. You're thirsty. Now to come to Jesus is to come to one who loved you so much that he came to this wicked earth and suffered the horrors of the cross to pay for your sins and my sins. And if we will believe in him, and that's what drinking of Jesus means. It's a parallel comment here in verse 38 where it says, He that believeth in me. John repeats believe in a clarifying statement in verse 39. He says, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because the Jesus was not yet glorified. To receive the living water that Jesus offers, come to him and drink, or believe in him. Make him your own by faith. Appropriate what he did on the cross for your sins. And a river running through the desert does you no good if you don't go and drink from it. If you feel thirsty, Jesus says, satisfy your thirst with abundant free salvation. And so a person of the promise is Jesus, the eternal God, In human flesh, he gave himself on the cross for our sins. The breadth of the promise is as wide as humanity. And the condition of the promise is that we be spiritually thirsty. And the simplicity of the promise is that all you do is you come to Jesus and believe in him. Now that brings us to the supplier of the promise. The Holy Spirit dwelling in each believer supplies us with every spiritual need. Verse 39 does say, But this spake he of the Spirit, which he that believe on him should receive. Now clearly John does not mean the Holy Spirit did not yet exist. In Genesis 1-2 we meet the Holy Spirit moving over the waters in creation. And there's a repeated references to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But rather, John means that the Spirit was not yet manifested on earth as he would be on the day or on and after the day of Pentecost when Jesus was crucified, raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven. In other words, glorified. In the upper room on the night he was betrayed, he said to the eleven in John 14, 16 through 17, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. And then after Jesus was raised from the dead, and just before he ascended in Acts chapter 1, 
It says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he saith he, Ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And on the day of Pentecost, they were all baptized with a spirit who came on them with power, and they spoke in tongues, and they became a powerful witness for Christ. And so some would say, well, we need that experience too, don't we? We need the experience that the disciples experienced at Pentecost. Subsequently to our salvation, we need a dramatic experience of the baptism of the Spirit, where we receive the Spirit and speak in tongues. But that is to misunderstand the Pentecost. That Pentecost was a one-time historical event where the risen and ascended Lord sent His Spirit in a special way to empower believers at the beginning of the church age. Baptism of the Spirit should not be confused with the indwelling Spirit. When a person comes to Christ, they are indwelt with the Spirit of God as soon as they're saved. And we receive that indwelling Spirit at the moment of salvation. So all believers in in Jesus Christ, in the church age, are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote it in Romans 8 and verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our redemption, Ephesians chapter 1 and 4. Uh, He gives spiritual gifts to all believers, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Spirit reveals to us the riches that God has prepared for us who love Him in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which include every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 1 again. And all we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, maybe you're wondering, if the Holy Spirit is living in me, then why don't I experience the, the rivers, plural, the rivers of living water inside me and flowing from me? Why is my life more accurately described as a trickle of water, not rivers? Well, other scriptures teach us that we must be learning to walk in the Spirit. We must learn to walk. He doesn't control us automatically. Galatians 5.16, Paul writes, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. He goes on to list some of the deeds of the flesh and the contrasting fruit of the Spirit. And then he repeats in chapter 5 of Galatians Verse 25, if ye live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. That is, if the Holy Spirit gave us new life, then we're to rely on the Spirit step by step, day by day. You know, walking is something we have to learn. You had to learn it when you were a child. You didn't just come out of your mother's belly and walk out the hospital, okay? They carried you out. And they carried you for a number of months and years, perhaps, before you learned finally to walk. It's, it's wonderful to, to watch a little child begin to learn to walk. You know, then boom. In uh, a couple of, one step and then down. Next day, maybe two steps. And you know, the believer's life is a lot like that. 
We don't just get up and walk as soon as we get saved. We fall a lot. But after a while, we hardly even think about it. Unless we're on a slippery surface. Walking is not spectacular. Paul doesn't say, leap by the Spirit. Or he doesn't say, fly by the Spirit. No, he says, walk. Walk. It's a slow, step-by-step process that you gradually get where you're going if you keep at it. And to walk by the Spirit means that each day, every day, every situation, you yield yourself to Him, you rely upon Him to work in you and through you, and during the day the flesh will rear its ugly head with impure thoughts and selfishness and anger and whatever you immediately con- uh, whatever you have, and you immediately confess that to the Lord, you turn from it, you ask the Holy Spirit to control your thoughts and your words and your actions, and you learn to walk step by step, day by day. And you learn to walk this way consistently, slowly the fruit of the Spirit will begin to grow in your life. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and temperance. So why does the Lord give us the Holy Spirit portrayed here as rivers of living water, flowing from our innermost being? Notice thirdly, being a blessing to others. Jesus Christ blesses all who believe in Him with rivers of living water so that we can be satisfied in Him and so that we can be a source of blessing to others. Notice, our satisfaction is in Him. Christ blesses us with rivers of living water so we can be satisfied in Him. The phrase, out of His belly, that's something we maybe have a hard time understanding, but it really needs to be understood. The belly is the innermost part of us that is always craving something. But here, rather than craving earthly things, the implication is that our inner cravings are abundantly satisfied through the indwelling Spirit of God. Many Old Testament scriptures that link water to God's abundant blessing on believers, when Jesus says, as the scripture saith, you saw that there? As the scripture hath said, He could very well be referring to Nehemiah chapter 8 and chapter 9. In Nehemiah 8, the return remnant listens as Ezra expounds the law and encourages them that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Then they discovered the command that the Feast of the Tabernacles and they celebrated with great joy in Nehemiah 8.17. And then in chapter 9, Nehemiah prays and recounts Israel's deliverance from Egypt and their time in the wilderness and mentioning God's provision of manna and water in chapter 9 verse 15. And then he repeats it in verse 20. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth, and gavest them water for their thirst. And the picture is that God sustains, and God satisfies the needs of people through His Spirit, even when they are in a barren land. That's the picture Jesus uses here. Jesus supplies us with the abundant, soul-satisfying rivers of living water in His Spirit, who reveals to us the riches of Christ for our every need. But it doesn't end there. Our satisfaction, yes, is in Him, but we are to be a source of blessing. You know, every 
small mountain stream flows and becomes a river. And Christ blesses us with abundant rivers of living water so that we can be a source of blessing to others. And the rivers flow out of us to others who are thirsty. This world is a barren desert and people are dying of thirst. Have you noticed? People are dying of thirst. And you and I are to be rivers of living water that these dying people need. As we see Christ in us, as, or they see Christ in us, that is, through the fruit of the Spirit, they'll become thirsty. They want to have what we have. And we can tell them how they can come to Jesus and drink. Lost people desperately need what only we who have believed can give them. I wonder, is your life an advertisement, so to speak? You know, we see advertisements all around for thirst thirst quenchers. But is your life that advertisement to the lost, dying world that you have life-giving water? Is your life a thirst quencher? The rivers should flow from us to other believers also. Especially those who may be going through a dry spell. You know, perhaps you can remember a dry spell that you went through. But you know, there are others around you that are probably going through a dry spell. And as you're filled with the Spirit and satisfied in Christ, you can overflow to those around you. You can begin in your own home. And the love and joy and peace and so forth can flow out of your life daily from husbands to wives and wives to husbands, from parents to children, from children to parents. And these qualities should be flowing between us here in the church, even if we find fellow believers difficult to be around. Now, if you only come to church to get something today, uh, you'll be like the Dead Sea. It's so salty that nothing can live in it because it has water flowing into it, but nothing flows out. When you come to church, you come with a prayer, Lord, fill me with your spirit and flow out of me toward those who may be thirsty. As you allow the rivers to flow out of you to others, you'll discover that you are actually more filled than before you gave out. That's the key to preventing burnout in the Christian life. Be satisfied in Christ and let his fullness flow through you to others. Whenever I think of being thirsty, I think of that old television program, Gunsmoke, starring James Arness as Marshal Matt Dillon, and how he could have, or he would have to go after the bad guy and He'd have to cross the desert to catch up with him. Excuse me for using this as an illustration, but I'm a Kansas boy. And this program was set in Dodge City, Kansas. Took place in my home state. Now the setting of those programs, Dodge City, maybe there was a desert nearby there, but I haven't seen that desert You know, I still have a hard time trying to figure out their portrayal of Kansas through their landscapes that they show. And I realized at one time, western Kansas was known as the Great American Desert. Yes, it was. That's because they didn't have all these trees, you know. You got trees here. 
Out there in western Kansas, there were no trees. And so they called it a desert. But in those desert scenes, there was always a hard, dry, thirsty trek across this desert, and those traveling would be warned that either the desert's going to get you or the Indians will. As the characters would plod across the desert, they would just about die. They'd run out of water and just about ready to succumb to the elements, and they would cross a hill, and down below would be a wonderful pool of water, and they'd just make it. And they lived happily ever after. No, I mean, you get the idea. And then, as I studied history and the social sciences in college, I remember my study of world geography, and one of the most famous deserts is the Sahara Desert. It's the largest desert in the world, covering over 3.5 million square miles. You're not only getting a history lesson, but you're getting a geography lesson today. Temperatures would regularly reach over 120 degrees. And yet, did you know that some of the world's largest supplies of underground fresh water are found in the middle of the Sahara Desert? These waters create oases that are fed by underground springs, and even in the midst of the hottest, the driest place on this earth, there are spots where water is abundant. And in this dry and thirsty world, Jesus offers us an oasis in the soul. His Spirit can quench your thirst, even as you journey through the desert of this life. I read about a a documentary film entitled A Thirsty World. It highlights the desperate need for fresh water in different places on our, our planet. I understand at one point in the film, a shepherd in Kenya is interviewed, and the man looks at the film crew in the eye and says, he has killed for water in the past, and he would do it again. Now, I don't minimize the need for literal water. But you know what? The greatest need of humanity is living water. The kind that gives you eternal life. Someone has already died to provide that living water. Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. You don't have to stay thirsty. You come and drink and with joy draw water out of the well of salvation and live. And listen, Christian, you know where the living water is. Are you telling the lost and dying and desert world we live in where they can have their thirst quenched? Don't keep it a secret. The world around us doesn't have to stay thirsty either. What would you do in response to Jesus' promise here? First, you know, honestly assess the degree to which out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Does that say anything to you? If that doesn't describe you, then why not? If you have to admit that there's more just a little trickle, then you need to make it a priority to be satisfied in Him with the riches of Christ. Walk in the Spirit and ask Him to fill you and then let your focus be off of yourself and onto others who you can bless. And pray that your normal experience, your everyday experience will be that 
from the innermost being of your heart and your life will flow rivers of living water to a thirsty world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you.